Good morning. Talk about an intense opener, right? Like, whoo, man. But it's, it's kind of fitting because of the topics that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. You see, we're starting a series today called, Where is God When? And we're calling it that because we're going to be addressing those topics, those moments in life, make us ask that question, where is God when I'm, when I'm controlled by anger? Where is God when I'm anxious, when I'm depressed, when I'm grieving? When I sit here and I think, man, no one cares for me, no one loves me, and you're wondering what your worth is. These are topics that oftentimes are not approached very well in the church world. In fact, they oftentimes have this really bad stigma, and people say, oh, you just need to have more faith. You just need to trust more. You just need to pray more. You're just doing everything wrong, and that doesn't help, right? So this morning, we're going to start the series, and if you're not a, a person who prays for your pastor, please be praying for this over the next few weeks, because these are some very sensitive topics and we want to, rather than jump to those really dangerous religious platitudes, we want to instead just ask the question, where is God in the middle of this? How, how does the gospel of Jesus speak hope and life into these really painful situations? But before I dive into this morning's topic, I need to actually lay down some ground rules for this series. So this is both for me, this is for all of us, but this is also for our speakers that are going to be joining us in this series. Okay, so number one. Me and all the other individuals who are going to speak in this series are not licensed professionals. So we can't give good clinical advice and proper healing in that regard. So please, you might want to take everything we say with a grain of salt. I bet you didn't think your pastor was going to say that in the morning, you're right. Listen to the things that matter and you just take everything with a grain of salt if it doesn't apply to you. And that also means please don't go out of here saying, well, my pastor said, right, because... Nothing good ever follows a statement like that, right? So let's just agree, like, let's put that into practice. We're not going to do that from now on and just in general, okay? All right? Uh, but I do need to address why we're having this. You see, we're not licensed therapists and professionals, but what we are are individuals who love this community, who love all of you, and we just want to give some encouragement to let you know that in the struggle you're facing, you're not alone, that you can count on those around you. So if you're looking around and you're like, man, no one here understands what I'm going through, then you're wrong. Because there are people here who love you and we want this to be a safe community. Which brings me to the second point, the second rule of this series, and that's it's okay to not be okay. You see, you can love Jesus and struggle with mental and emotional health issues. It does not mean that you don't have faith. It does not make you less of a Christian, right? We live in a very broken world. And things happen, right? And so to immediately be able to say, oh man, you just, you have problems, you just don't have enough faith, that does not fit with the gospel and the stories that we see in the Bible. In fact, many of the individuals in the Bible have their own struggles with mental and emotional health, so you're in good company, right? That means it's okay to not be okay. Because we're all imperfect people, but we're choosing to follow a perfect God. One who's patient and kind and loving so it's okay to not be okay. In fact, you might realize in this series that, man, you need some professional help. You need to see a therapist. And that's okay. There's no terrible stigma about that because what that's actually saying is that you're committed about your own healing. And I'm a big fan of that because, believe it or not, I've gone through therapy before, multiple times, in fact. Right? Before Jody and I got married, that was the first time I enrolled myself in therapy because I sat there and thought, man, I'm about to get married and commit my life to someone, and I've got some real baggage that I'm not dealing with 
in a healthy way. And I don't want to bring this into a marriage that's going to hurt her. So I enrolled myself in therapy and I was there for quite some time. So if that's you, if you're like, man, I need therapy or I have a therapist or I, I get medication, there is no terrible stigma here about that, right? This is a safe place. And we're looking to Jesus in this time. Which brings me to the third rule of this series. And this might surprise some of you, but let me go and say this. No sermon is going to be able to heal you. We have 30 minutes to talk about some deep topics. There's no way we can hit every little thing about it. And there's no way if you're coming in here like, I'm coming in with this problem. I know we're going to be talking about this topic today. And I'm going to be healed in 30 minutes. And if that's you, you have way too high of expectations from me, okay? I am not that guy, right? That is only Jesus. And so we're just going to point to Jesus and we're going to tell you that this is a journey. That you're not going to be healed in 30 minutes. But we just want to offer you some helpful tools that you can apply to your life, the areas where you're hurting and struggling, and see how Jesus is going to guide you down this. Which brings me to my first topic for this series. We're going to be talking about anger. Now, anger, we know, is a very powerful emotion. It comes up, and oftentimes it results in some destruction. It results in us saying and doing things that we later on regret, right? Like it springs up, and all of a sudden you're like the Hulk. You just got to smash things. You got to solve things. You got to just break your way through whatever the situation is. And then afterwards, you're left like Bruce Banner thinking, Wow, I made some horrible mistakes on the anger, right? Now, the Bible actually says a lot about anger. It's really all over the place, right? And some good examples and some bad examples. And that's important to note because there actually is such a thing as healthy anger, right? You see it all over the Bible. You see it in Moses. You see it in um, Elijah. You see it in some of the other prophets. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in Paul when he writes his letters to the Galatians and Corinth saying, man, I'm angry at you guys for how you're taking the gospel of Jesus and you're distorting it for your selfish gain that's hurting people. Man, there's a lot of examples of actually good, healthy anger. But when you think of anger, and you think of violent, angry outbursts, does Jesus come to your mind? If not, you might be shot by the story we're going to open up reading this morning. Because if you sit there and think, man, Jesus was just this nice guy. He just floated on a cloud. Man, everyone loved him. He was such a good guy. Then you're going to be shocked about the story that every gospel writer tells us about. Of the moment when Jesus lost it. Where he lost his cool. He got violent Right? So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, Mark's biography account of this story. So if you have a Bible and you want to jump in, let's go and dive in. Right? So Mark chapter 11, it begins by saying this. Verse 15, it says, And they came to Jerusalem. Now it's important to understand, this happens right after the triumphal entry. Right? So Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's had three years of ministry. He's quite popular. He comes into town with this massive parade. People are cheering him on. They think he's going to come in and kick out the Romans. And so they're following him. But Jesus doesn't go first to the headquarters of the Romans. He doesn't go to the house of the enemy. No, rather instead we're told that he entered the temple. Right, so the place of God, the last place they expected him to go first, right, as him being the big king and all that they claim him to be. And it says he entered the temple, and get this, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I think it's 
Luke's account of this story that talks about how Jesus made a whip and started chasing people, right? So just keep that in mind next time you say, what would Jesus do, right? That's always acceptable. So he starts chasing people out, and he goes and he starts telling them, he's teaching them and saying to them, he's shouting out of the top of his lungs, he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, right? So he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah in this, and then he goes and he says this, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Right? Now, typically, that passage is used in a lot of cases out of context. In fact, I've heard people outside of this church tell me, this is why I don't give to the mission of Jesus and his church, right? Because Jesus chased out the money changers. And if that's you, I'm going to say something that, that might anger you. In fact, some of you might never return to this church because I'm about to say this. If you don't give to the mission of Jesus, then you are not a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus talks a lot about us using our money to be generous to those in need. And that includes the church. The embodiment of an organization that serves the mission of Jesus. And if you're like, man, this is why I don't give to church, then you're not reading the rest of the gospel and the accounts of Jesus and the New Testament writers. Because they're all very big that the way we use our money is a pointer, a sign to what's going on in our heart with God. Right? And so in this moment, Jesus, he's not contradicting all of his teachings. Rather, instead, he's addressing something different that's going on. And if you understand the context of what's going on, the passage of Jeremiah that he's quoted, and the history of that day, you'd realize that the issue here is not money, but corruption. You see, because the temple of God, when it was first formed in the book of 1 Kings, and you see this as well when the tabernacle was established, you see God declaring his home, the temple, was to be a beacon for all the nations to say that God loves them and God wants to dwell in their lives and he's opening the floodgates to allow them to have a relationship with him. That's what the temple was to serve, a physical beacon for the world to look at and say that is proof that God wants to be in the room with us. But over time, those in charge of taking care of this mission of God, the temple, they started putting up barriers Basically things of saying, hey, you can't come and be with God. God doesn't really want all the nations. He just wants us. And so it became a story where you had to look a certain way, dress a certain way, come from a certain part of town. You had to make a certain amount of money. You had to avoid certain mistakes in your life if you wanted to be accepted by God. If you wanted to dwell in the room with God. You realize the, the twist there, the corruption that happens there. And here's the sad thing. A lot of churches can still do this as well. And this infuriated Jesus. He is watching this take place, and he just has to put it to stop. He starts making a ruckus, flipping tables, chasing people out, and making a statement that says, this is not what God intended. God wants to be with all of us, all the nations, to come and be a part of his presence. And you guys are putting barriers and trying to prevent people from being a part of it. And they got angry. And he got angry. But his anger was a good anger. It's a healthy anger. In fact, it's what's known as righteous anger. See, righteous anger is when we cannot accept the practice of injustice over the will of God. 
It is a response to when God's dream is replaced by man's corruption. And in such a context, hear me, in such a context, anger is permitted. Anger is allowed. But if we're honest, that's not the type of anger we typically express. Typically, we express unhealthy anger, and it usually involves things like sudden outbursts, snapping at your spouse and your kids, right? Some of you probably did that on the way here. That's okay, right? Remember, it's okay to not be okay. And sometimes it involves uh, violence, bitterness, passive aggressiveness, and it always results in damaged relationships, there's a, a writer of a book called the Book of Proverbs in the Bible, and he writes a lot of things, a lot of wisdom, but he says a couple of different things about anger result, relating to this fact that unhealthy anger results in damaged relationships. Let's look at some examples. So there's chapter 14 where he writes saying, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. That we can understand means this is someone who, rather than getting angry really fast, they stop and think through what was said, what was done, hearing another person's perspective, right? That person has a lot of great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. They're foolish. They're quick on the draw, and they're, they're missing something. They're going to hurt something because of it. Another example, Proverbs 15 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Here's another one. Proverbs 29 says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. What this writer is talking about is exactly what I just said a minute ago, that unhealthy anger results in damaged relationships. And I think we all have experiences about that, right? Like we've all said and done something that we regret, and it happened in a moment of anger. And now things are a little bit rough and messy with another person. It's awkward, it's weird, and until it's resolved, it's going to stay like that or it's going to get worse, right? Because we all have these experiences. And I think it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to know that Jesus probably doesn't want us practicing unhealthy anger, right? One writer, possibly the brother of Jesus, his name's John, he writes this book talking about that. So in James chapter 1, verse 19, we read this. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, real fast, beloved brothers, he's referring to those who are followers of Jesus. So if that is not you, you're like, hey, I'm just here to just chill out, but I'm not really a follower of Jesus. You know, I don't really believe he died and rose again, that he's the king of the universe, that he's God in the flesh, and I'm not really interested in following what he has to say for my life. Look, these commands that James is about to say, you don't have to obey them right? Because he's talking to Christians. He's talking to those who are followers of Jesus. So here's the command he gives. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Raise a hand. Who's proud that they're that example, like that embodiment, right? None of us, because we all struggle with this. And so he goes on, and if that's you, you're probably going to feel a little uncomfortable with what James has to say next. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce what God wants you to produce in this world. He says, therefore, put all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, the point James is making here is that it is not God's desire that we be controlled by our anger, but that we be controlled by the things that testify to God's faithfulness in our lives. Now, I think we need to be reminded of that. Because we live in a very angry world right now. There's a lot of bitterness, 
There's a lot of hurt feelings. Passive aggressiveness is everywhere. You can't turn on the news without seeing it. And to our great shame, it's found within Christians as well. And what this shows us is that in our anger, we show what we truly value. When we lash out in unhealthy anger, we are telling everyone what we truly value. When Jesus got angry, it showed that he valued the purity of Christ and God's mission for all the nations, for everyone to come and know how God loves them and wants to be in their lives. But when we get angry, it shows that our values are oftentimes that we want to win at all costs, that we want to be seen in a certain way, that we want to be appreciated, that we want what we want. And what that typically is is just sex, money, and power. But these are the messages that we show the rest of the world. And here's the, the embarrassing part. In the past few years, the church has presented that, mes- that message to the world. And they're looking at us and they're saying, man, you guys, you say you value this over here, but in reality, you're showing that you're just like everyone else. You see, we might say, hey, we're Christians. But you know what the world sees? That we have just as much bitterness in our hearts toward others as everyone else, as a non-follower of Jesus. We say that we are Christians, but we speak in our homes, in our families, with passive aggressiveness that you could not tell the difference between a Jesus follower and a non-Jesus follower. And probably the most embarrassing one of all is that we claim we are Christians and we worship a God who gave up everything for us. But if we don't get what we want, oh man, we get angry. And we show the world we're more concerned about winning and getting what we want. And when we don't get it, we get angry. We get angry. And we do things and say things that we later on regret that do not look like Jesus. It shows us and shows others that we value more getting what we want than what being seen like Jesus. Let that sink in. Do you see the problem that causes Anger is as addictive as it is dangerous. And if we let it, it will destroy our homes. It will destroy our family. And it will destroy our influence in this world. And I say that as one who has experienced that. You see, I struggle with my own anger issues and bitterness issues. And that might surprise you. But I do. So I don't say this as someone who is, look at me, I, I figure this all out, I'm masterpiece, but there are a lot of times I get incredibly angry. You see, growing up, I went through situations that still I'm still wrestling with. And when I was a kid, I had no way of coping with that and wrestling with that without lashing out. In fact, I sought people out to make them feel pain. And if I didn't, I'd go home and I would break something, throw something, look for something to destroy. I was the kid who got kicked out of summer camps, one of them being a Christian summer camp, right? So what did I do? I became a pastor. 
right? Can you imagine being in the room and hearing the Christian counselor saying, please do not bring your kid back. They have an attitude problem. And, you know, probably parents thinking, yes, this is pastor material right here, right? In fact, on one occasion, I remember I was at this camp and I got so mad at something that was just small and insignificant that I saw across the room a couple of kids sitting on a couch and I ran over and I flipped the couch with them on it. And I know you're sitting thinking, hmm, Jesus flipped tables, but over here our pastor flipped couches full of little kids, right? Look, I'm not perfect. But I was going through things at the time that I did not know how to cope with. I did not know how to deal with. But I got better. I found healing. And so please hear me when I say this. I'm not saying all this to, to judge you, to make you feel uncomfortable, but to present the fact that there is healing. But in order for us to define that healing, we have to educate ourselves. And we have to understand that anger is a symptom of a deeper issue that's taking place. In fact, studies are showing this right now. Studies show that when you get angry, your brain is releasing a chemical that numbs the pain. So whatever triggered you, you can forget about it and you can just focus on the anger. It's kind of funny that your brain wants to protect itself so it ends up destroying and hurting other people around you, which just causes a cycle that they'll get angry in turn, right? Um, I think we all have experiences with this. Um, And psychologists have identified four main triggers to anger, right? And you can remember it with this acronym called GIFT, all right? So I'm going to break this down for you. First one, G, stands for guilt, meaning that anger can be triggered over feelings of unresolved guilt, all right? You see this sometimes in parents, right? So parents, if you feel guilty about you as a parent, you tell yourself, I'm just a terrible parent, be careful, because that might fuel later anger, which then will just justify when you snap at your kids and you do something, you'll justify later on, this is why I'm a terrible parent. And you see, it's a cycle, right? So if you're dealing with guilt that has been unresolved, you will sometimes express anger. The next one, I, stands for inferiority, meaning that you feel like, man, I'm being judged to compare to someone else, or maybe I'm just, I'm not the favorite, or I'm not appreciated, you know, this is why, you know, ladies, let me give you some helpful advice, this is why your husband gets mad if you compare him to Thor, right? This is why, okay? Because we feel inferior to that, right? And let me tell you, you just got to be disappointed in that, right? Um, But see, this is an area of where we get angry about when we feel like we don't matter or feel like we're not appreciated or we're inferior. The next one, F, stands for fear. And this is uh, anger can be caused through a fear of a change in your situation, right? So I see this a lot of times when couples are fighting with each other. In reality, they're both afraid of the changes going on in their life and in the relationship, and they don't know how to communicate that, so they get angry, so they lash out at each other, Right? Sometimes this happens when a couple is heading towards divorce. The reason why they're fighting a whole lot more towards the end is because they're both afraid of the changes that are taking place, and they don't know how to communicate that and process it, right? So fear of change can be a big trigger to anger, right? The next one, trauma, which means that when we go through moments of pain in our life that's unresolved, that can trigger anger right? And bitterness and those hateful feelings sometimes. And so what all this shows us, what all four hurts and triggers show us is that anger is a response to pain that is not being dealt with, not being dealt with. So if we want to be better at controlling our anger, 
If we want to show the community that a Jesus follower is someone of peace and joy, then we need to address these deeper hurts that take place. And here's what's really encouraging for this morning. When you open up the Bible and you look at Jesus, Jesus speaks a lot to these issues. And it's really encouraging that there is hope. In fact, we're going to look at one in the book of Romans chapter 8. Now, this book in particular, especially this passage, is written by the Apostle Paul to followers of Jesus. So once again, if this is not you, you don't get the benefit of this encouragement. But if that is you, if you're like, man, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to see how that transforms all my relationships, that transforms who I am, and that's going to make an impact upon the community around me, right? If that's you, then you're going to take great encouragement from this passage. It's in Romans chapter 8. It says this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, that's Paul's way of saying those who are Jesus followers, right? For all of them, get this, they are sons of God. He says, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There it is again, fear, right? But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that, our, that we are children of God. Now, let me tell you why that passage is so encouraging for those of us who feel like we're struggling with anger and we want to be Jesus followers, right? It tells us that, that God cares for us, that he knows what we're going through, that he's a good father. So he knows when we feel like, man, this guilt that we're carrying is being undealt with. He knows when we feel inferior. He knows when we feel fear. He knows when we feel trauma and pain in our lives. But he doesn't just know it. If you're a Jesus follower, you can take comfort that God not only cares for you and knows what you're going through, but he wants to do something about that pain. Right? Take, for instance, a guy named David who writes in one of his Psalms, Psalm 147. He says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He's talking about God, that God cares for us. He sees what we're going through, and he has a mission in mind to take care of you and I. That his mission is not just our eternal salvation, but it's for today. That God cares about what we are going through today. David knew that very well. In fact, he writes in one of his Psalms, Psalm 23, he says, Yahweh is my shepherd. Don't be distracted by the fact that I like to say Yahweh when you see the words the Lord in the Old Testament, because that's what it is. It says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. He's talking about this God who loves him and cares for him, right? Well, here's what's shocking. He goes on. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Talk about people that you would feel inferior to, right? Who make you feel inferior is your enemies. He's talking about, he's like, look, this God, he's taken me through trials. And now look, he's blessing me in front of those who make me feel inferior, right? Like he goes on, he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Now, what's amazing to understand about this? is David probably wrote this in a very dark moment of his life when he was being hunted as a fugitive for crimes he did not commit. And so I want you to picture that in your mind, right? You go from one moment, you're living it up in the palace to the next moment, you're having to live in a cave. You're being hunted. Your name is just being dragged through the mud and you're innocent. Imagine that situation. 
would you not maybe feel a little guilt, wondering, man, am I responsible for this? Would you not feel a little inferior, a little fear, certainly some trauma and pain over what's going on, right? But David, if you look at his story, he did not lash out in anger in this time. No, instead, he found peace in the midst of a very unpeaceful time to find that that God cared for him, that God still loved him, that God was still doing something in his life. Jesus echoes this same message the night before he dies, and he knows his followers are about to go through a really traumatic experience. He knows they're going to feel guilt over leaving him behind. He knows they're going to feel inferior. He knows they're going to feel fear of the change and the pain of what's coming up. And so get this, he knows they're about to face some very unpeaceful times. And so he says this in John chapter 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. My friends, you understand what this all shows us about our anger? It shows us a pathway to healing. And it shows us that allowing God to work in our pain frees us to experience his peace. Let me say that again. Allowing God to work in our pain frees us to experience his peace. Jesus never promises us an easy life or a life free from pain. In fact, he actually promises the opposite, that following him is going to involve some pain. And he offers us peace. Not not a peaceful life, but peace in the midst of the storm. Because he knows the pain that's coming our way sometimes. And when we experience pain, typically we have limited options, right? Right? Typically, we respond in ways that are unhealthy, that hurt us and hurt others. It only leads to bitterness, scorn, and disappointment. That's typically the route we take, and it serves no purpose except for destruction. But there's another way, and it's what Jesus is offering. It's the courage to be able to just take a breath and let it go and trust that God is at work in the midst of this situation and struggle that's taking place. That switch is not easy. To go from this other aspect over here of our bitterness to switch over and choose to trust God in the midst of this, it's not easy. It's hard. But you get to choose your heart in life. You do. You see, living in debt is hard. Being financially responsible is hard. So choose your heart. Eating healthy is hard. Diet and exercise, that's hard. But living unhealthy is also hard. Choose your heart. Living with uncontrollable anger is hard. Choosing to lean into the peace of Christ is hard. Choose your heart. The comfort here is to know that you don't choose this other hard, the good hard, alone. But God is a great healer. He's a good father, and he's very much interested and invested in your emotional, mental well-being. And so if that's you, if you're like, man, I I want that. I want Christ to to work in the pains of my life to experience his peace. I want to offer you just a few helpful coping skills. So in this series, we're going to end the services with some helpful coping skills. So this is for those of you who are like, man, I want to follow this. I I need help with my anger issues. So here's number one, right? 
when you are hurt, acknowledge that hurt. Don't bury it down. Don't stuff more pain on top of it. When you are hurt, acknowledge that hurt. When you've been hurt by others, when you've experienced guilt and inferiority and fear and trauma, acknowledge that, including, you might be surprised I'm about to say this, including when you feel hurt by God. Because that does happen. Let me tell you, I'm a witness of that. I have had screaming matches with God before on that. And that might be you. You might be like, man, I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm angry with God at the moment. But every time I've expressed my anger towards God, you know what I found? I found a God in the midst of that who was patient with me, who was kind, who was loving. And so when you are hurt, that's what I want to encourage you to do. Acknowledge that you've been hurt. Don't bury it down. Don't allow anger to seep out because you did not acknowledge your hurt. Which brings me to the helpful coping skill number two. When you have hurt someone because of your anger, apologize to them. Own up to it. Because if you don't, you know what you do? You're sending a message that your unhealthy anger is accepted. It's accepted that you just hurt a relationship. Parents, you need this right now. Let me tell you, the power that you have after you've maybe lashed out anger towards your kid, the power you have and the opportunity to come up to them, to have the humility to say, I'm sorry. Even if your anger was justified, to come to it and be like, you know what? I'm sorry. What I said and did was not an appropriate reaction. Let me tell you, at first-hand experience, that changes you. You see, I grew up with a father who was a combat soldier. He's an officer. He led men into battle. You can't go through that without coming back with a little bit of anger. In fact, there was a period where he was gone for two years straight. He comes back, I'm angry, he's angry, and I was dealing with a father who beforehand was goofy, he was fun-loving. He comes back and he was a man struggling with PTSD, with quick angry outbursts. It took a long time of healing before he got back to be the man he was beforehand. But some of the most powerful experiences I ever had with my dad back then or the moments after he lost his cool when he came back later on with tears in his eyes apologizing for the way he responded. I'm sorry, I didn't plan to tell that story. So, um, I'll move on to the third coping skill. Um, find a helpful way to pour the anger into something creative rather than into a destruction of your life. Find something. It could be art. It could be crafts. It could be songwriting. It could be whatever. Find something that's like a healthy out for your anger that does not lead you destroying something that God has given you as a blessing in your life. Final coping skill, and then we'll end the service. Put up reminders in place of your identity in Christ. Look, I had to do this when I was struggling with my anger. I covered my bedroom wall with passages of scripture all around me that talked about how much God loves me and our identity in Christ. And so every day when I was in that space, I would be reminded everywhere I looked that there's a God who loves me, who cares for me. I had to go through that. I'm not saying you need to cover your bedroom walls in that, right? That's how extreme I had to get. But maybe you need some reminders in your life, a little note card, something that tells you when you feel angry, when you feel guilty, when you feel like, man, you're just not measuring up, when you feel fear, when you feel trauma, something that can physically remind you that there is a God who knows what you're going through and is dealing with it, that you can trust. That one day he's going to wipe away every tear. One day he's going to solve every problem. He's going to fix the brokenness, something that you can physically look at and remember the mission of God. Won't you pray with me this morning?
Father, um, thank you. I thank you that you call us to live a life controlled by and motivated by your faithfulness. But sometimes, Father, it's hard. Sometimes we're stressed, we're tired, and we end up saying and doing something that you know, later on we just regret because we know it didn't reflect you well. And Father, I thank you so much that you offer us grace and mercy. That just because we made one mistake does not mean you're kicking us out, that you're done with us, but you are so patient with us. But I do ask that you would work in our pains. We oftentimes don't like to talk about our struggles and pains. We oftentimes more like to just bury them down and just let them seep the symptom of anger out in this world. But Father, would you help us? Would you help those in this room who feel bitter towards others, who are carrying anger, who are carrying so much scorn and disappointment towards others because of these things? Father, would you speak into that pain this morning and give us peace? Would you help those who, who need a peaceful spouse, who need peaceful parents? Would you help them to know that you are still working on those other individuals, that we're all work in progress? Would you just help us to, to see you so that we might show you to the rest of the world? Father, that's our big heart. That's our big desire, is that we want to live lives that, that point to you. And so we're asking that you would deal with our pains. We're, we're opening ourselves up to you. Asking that you would speak and deal with these issues so that we would better love you and love others. It's in your name I pray. Amen.